And let's turn to Acts chapter 23. We will start at verse 12 and read through to the end of the chapter. Now hear God's word. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one, that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Paul's praetorium. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever, and as Peter says, this word is being preached to us today. Our God and our Father, we are so thankful every Lord's Day to be able to come into your presence and to worship you, to ascribe praise and honor and glory to you, and then to receive from you the grace that comes flowing into our lives powerfully from your living and active word. What a privilege, Father, to hear the words, to study the words, to understand the words that you have spoken to us and are speaking to us. We pray, Holy Spirit, be with us. Illuminate the meaning of these words to us today and use them to continue to transform our lives by the renewing of our minds. Father, may the words of my mouth today and may the meditations of our hearts today be pleasing in your sight as we come to your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our passage today, here in the 
most of the remaining verses of Acts 23. I think we'll get down to around verse 25 today as Luke continues to chronicle the events of Paul's life and his ministry when he had come to Jerusalem, knowing that affliction and suffering and imprisonment awaited for him there. In in our passage today, Luke highlights for us in these verses an all-important subject that God reveals throughout His Word that is essential for us as God's people to understand and to come to terms with and to, to become more and more confident of and to learn to rest in more and more and more in our lives. And that subject is this reality that God reveals to us and and that's on display here in Acts chapter 23 is the reality of what we call the providence of God. The providence of God. That's the subject that I want for us to meditate on together in our time in God's Word today. Providence. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, the great Princeton theologian from the late 1800s and early 1900s, back when there were great theologians at Princeton still. Warfield said this, both with great theological accuracy and and also with great pastoral poignancy, he said, a firm faith in the universal providence of God is the solution to all earthly troubles. And that is what I want for the Holy Spirit to make us confident of from His Holy Word today. That a firm faith in the universal providence of God is the solution to all earthly troubles. Now, before we get going into the text, the word providence that I'm using and that theologians have used for centuries, that word is not a word that's actually used in the Bible. It's a word that theologians use to speak about a reality that is revealed clearly throughout the Bible. Kind of like the word Trinity, right? That's not a word that appears in our Bibles, but it is a word that we use to speak about the great reality of the triune nature of the one true God that is clearly revealed and taught in God's Word in the Bible. Same thing with the word providence. What do we mean by that word providence? What biblical reality does it speak to? Here's Warfield's explanation of that term and the biblical reality that it's pointing to. In his words, the term providence refers to the reality and truth that in the infinite wisdom of the Lord of all the earth, Each and every event falls with exact precision into its proper place in the unfolding of God's divine plan. Nothing, however small, however strange, occurs without His ordering or without its particular fitness for its place in the working out of His grand purpose and to the end of all shall be the manifestation of His glory and the accumulation of His praise. That's pretty good, right? What Warfield is explaining there is the relationship between the nature of God and the works of God. Between who God is and what God does as the God who He is. He is the eternal great I Am who is all-knowing, and who is all-wise. He is the sovereign Creator and Lord of all things. All things. And in His infinite wisdom and Lordship of all the earth, each event falls with exact precision into its proper place in the unfolding of His divine plan. Nothing, no matter how small or strange, occurs without His ordering or without it being particularly fit into its place in the working out of His divine purpose for everything in history and in creation. So providence is the inescapable reality of the comprehensive lordship 
that the one true, eternal, sovereign, holy, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise God exercises over every aspect and instance of His creation in order to accomplish His eternal perfect purposes for the exhibition of His praise and glory in all of creation for all of eternity. And again, as Warfield says, not just theologically, but also very pastorally, a firm faith in this reality, in the universal providence of God, is the solution to all earthly troubles. Comprehending this, understanding this, being confident in this, learning more and more about this, and learning more and more to rest in this great reality of the universal, comprehensive, sovereign providence of God over everything. That's the solution to all earthly troubles. That doesn't mean that a firm faith in the providence of God is going to prevent earthly troubles or make them all go away in our lives. It means that the only way to navigate them when they inevitably happen in our lives The only way to know peace in the midst of trouble and comfort and hope and joy in any and every earthly trouble is to be firmly confident that it's not just happening by random chance or fate and that ultimately even all of the evil in this world is not sovereign over the trouble in your life. But that ultimately the only way to know peace and comfort and hope and joy is to be firmly confident that everything that's going on, even every trouble and affliction and struggle and suffering, is ordered wisely and righteously and lovingly and perfectly by the sovereign wisdom and power and faithfulness and and goodness of our eternal God who is the Lord over all the earth. Which is pretty important, right? Unless, of course, you don't want to know peace and comfort and hope and joy in your life, right? If you, unless you want to live in, in a constant and growing state of discontentment and discouragement and frustration and despair and anxiety and bitterness in your life. Unless you don't care about the reality of, of God's great nature as the sovereign Lord over all the earth, unless you're not concerned with the manifestation of His glory and the accumulation of His praise, as Warfield puts it. If if you don't care about any of that, then you don't need to know about the providence of God. But if those things are true in your life, that you don't care about any of that, then you might be able to avoid some of the troubles in this life. And you might, for a time, be able to compensate for them through various earthly strategies and pleasures that can distract you from the pain. But eventually, as you grow older, trouble's going to hit. As your body begins to break down more and more, as death becomes ever more inevitable, as as you're staring down the barrel of eternity, eventually the trouble is going to overcome you. And then what? If your peace and comfort and hope and joy is not firmly anchored to the sovereign purposes and goodness and faithful providence of our great God, then you will be swallowed up by agony and despair and hopelessness and suffering for all of eternity. But for all of those, for all of those who are the blood-bought children of God, Our eternal hope and confidence and peace and comfort and joy are anchored to everything that God has sovereignly provided for us by giving us His only begotten Son to pay the price for all our sins, to grant us an eternal inheritance in Him. And, in the words of Paul in Romans 8 verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Don't you trust Him? Don't you trust Him to provide? To be good? And so, as those who have gathered together today to worship Him, 
who has sovereignly provided everything that was necessary for our eternal salvation and who reigns over this universe and every aspect of our lives in His faithfulness and goodness and love, we need to fix our minds together on this great reality of His faithful providence in our lives and over every aspect of this creation. Because it results in the manifestation of His glory and the accumulation of His praise and comfort and peace and hope and joy for our souls. So let's look at this text here this morning. Luke relates a very simple story here in Acts chapter 23, which shows a wonderful example of the providence of God in action in Paul's life. Paul has been confined, remember, in the barracks in the Roman Antonia fortress that is adjacent to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Because when he came to Jerusalem as a Christian, as a preacher of Jesus Christ, this angry mob of unbelieving Jews saw him, recognized him, and tried to beat him to death in the streets. And the Roman tribune, not wanting that blood on his hands, not wanting that trouble in his town, intervened and had Paul hauled away from that bloodthirsty mob. We learn the name of the tribune here in verse 26 of our text. It's Claudius Lysias. After he rescued Paul, he allowed Paul to plead with the crowd, remember? But in their rage, they only became more and more violent. So then he had Paul brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the council of leadership in in Jerusalem, to try to figure out from them what exactly Paul had done to provoke such an uproar in the city. But they just all ended up quarreling with one another. And as their anger started to boil over in that meeting, Lysias feared that they were going to tear Paul to pieces. And so he had Paul brought back to the barracks, where Jesus appeared to Paul by night and told him in verse 11, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And so we saw how Paul, in the midst of all of these troubles that he's encountering in his life, was determined not to interpret those troubles or to respond to those troubles in the flesh but to walk by the Spirit. And when he did that, he was able to be focused on the will and the purposes of God in those troubles. What is God doing here? What opportunity might there be in this trial of my life to glorify God by proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And so that's what Paul did. He was Focus not on his own pain, not his own needs or rights or, or desires. He was driven by the will of God to testify of the glory of the risen Jesus. And now Jesus has come to him and said, My will for you is to go all the way to Rome and do the same thing. Testify of my glory. You're going to do it in chains. It's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be fun but I will be with you. And so in verse 12, Luke records now that a group of more than 40 Jewish people, again, unbelievers, they plotted together. They conspired together. How are we going to get to Paul when he's locked up in that Roman fortress that's filled with a thousand Roman soldiers? They plotted together, they conspired together, they bound themselves. How noble of them. They bound, they took an oath before God that they would deprive themselves of any kind of food or drink until they had killed Paul, until they had murdered Paul. And so they went, Luke says in verse 14, they went to the chief priests of the temple in Jerusalem. They went to the elders. They went to the highest religious leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem and they told them about this plot and this oath that they'd taken. And they asked them, they asked the chief priests and the elders to join them, to become complicit with them, to help them to be able to murder Paul as soon as possible so that they didn't have to miss too many meals. 
And the plan, as Luke summarizes it there in verse 15, is, is that the chief priests and elders, along with the rest of the council, along with the whole Sanhedrin, all of the religious leaders and rulers in Jerusalem, they would tell the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, that they, that the Sanhedrin, needed to examine Paul more closely, question him more thoroughly, so that they could determine more precisely what it was that he was guilty of. But of course, that's just a ruse to get Paul out of the barracks, out in the open, so that this group of more than 40 Jewish men can assassinate Paul in cold blood. Before he ever gets to the Sanhedrin, they won't actually have to lay hands on Paul, but his blood will be on their hands. They probably won't be implicated in this conspiracy by the Romans, but if it went through, they would be guilty before God. But notice, they don't rebuke these men. They don't say, what is wrong with you people that you would conceive of such a thing in the wickedness of your hearts? No. They're complicit in their own hearts. And by their complicity in this ungodly act of pure wickedness and evil, they are opposing themselves to God. So take note, this is how the sinful flesh works when it's faced with trouble. And when it's committed to solving trouble by its own means instead of through faith in God. According to fleshly wisdom and prideful, self-oriented, sinful desire instead of through faith by the Spirit and for the glory of God. Now this is a rather extreme example of how the flesh does that, of course. But see, every single example of tackling trouble in the flesh, whether it involves you giving yourself permission to tell a little white lie, or to conveniently bend or break a rule or the law, or to give yourself permission to manipulate another person, or try to control somebody that you don't have any right to control, or to use anger and fits of rage to achieve what you want and get people to give you what you want, or to abuse people, or to murder people. See, no matter what it is that your flesh is doing, it's all just a difference of degree. The common foundation is the sinful human flesh instead of God-fearing faith. The flesh is that voice in us that says, when faced with something that we don't like, I can't trust God or His wisdom or righteousness to be the solution of this trouble. And so then the flesh proposes various ways that we can take matters into our own hands and do things according to our own desires and our own wisdom and achieve a better solution and get a better result than we would if we trusted God and did things His way. That's the flesh. And and you all know what I'm talking about when I talk about that voice. I hear it every day, all the time. And so do you. The Israelites in 1 Samuel chapter 4 were faced with big trouble from the Philistines. They had faced them in battle one day and lost. And so in their minds, their flesh was telling them, you can't trust God anymore. Where was He? Why why did the Lord allow us to be defeated? He failed us. He let us down. And so they decided to do things their way instead of trusting God. They said, you know what we got to do? We got to go get the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh and we got to bring that big box full of Power, supernatural power out onto the battlefield and, and will defeat the Philistines that way. Well, that was strictly forbidden to do unless God commanded it. But they did. They had the sons of the high priest in Shiloh, Hophni and Phinehas, bring that ark out of the holy place in the tabernacle and out onto the battlefield because they thought that it was just a big box full of supernatural power like raiders of the lost ark and that if they opened it up there all the philistines would just be blown away 
But in their foolishness and in their fleshliness, they forgot that the power doesn't belong to the box. The power belongs to the Most High God who they were disobeying and not trusting. And so, they thought they were going to get a better outcome doing things their way. And for a moment, they were really happy. They got the ark there onto the battlefield. And the night before the battle, they were hooping and hollering and partying and crying out. And the Philistines were going, what are they carrying on about over there in their camp? But then the next day, they lost again. And this time, it was absolutely catastrophic. Not only did the Philistines beat them roundly, the Philistines then took the ark brought it back to one of their pagan temples, and they killed the high priest's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who had come to accompany the ark. And when their father Eli, back in Shiloh, the high priest, heard about it, he was so distraught that his sons were dead, that the ark of the covenant was gone, that he fell out of his chair, broke his neck, and also died. That's a bad day. Because in their trouble, they did not trust God. They followed flesh instead of fearing the Lord in faith. And so whatever happiness they experienced was fleeting. And whatever success they sought was shattered. And all of their trouble only went from bad to much, much worse. That's how this goes. The flesh operates on a very pragmatic ends justify the means kind of principle. The more important the ends, the more important the the goals that the flesh desires, then the more justified the flesh feels in employing whatever means necessary to accomplish those goals and achieve those ends. Abraham and Sarah were promised by God that Sarah would bear a child through Abraham in spite of her barrenness and in spite of their old age. But they didn't trust God to fulfill the promise the way God had said He would. But they wanted the child anyway. And so, apart from faith, They justified themselves in taking matters into their own hands and acting according to their own wisdom and desires, and they defined for themselves what was acceptable to do apart from God's will in order to achieve their goals their way and according to their ability instead of trusting God. They devised this plan. Abraham is going to copulate with Hagar. Sarah's maidservant, instead of with Sarah, his wife. And the result was a child. But the child was Ishmael, the child of flesh. Not Isaac, the child of promise. Listen, we've got to recognize these same impulses and tendencies operating in our own flesh, in our own lives. Whenever we face trouble or temptation, and instead of trusting God, doing things our way and justifying whatever seems right in our own eyes as the necessary means to achieve the ends and the goals that our flesh desires. Recognize it boils down to that in your life. In a hundred ways, probably every hour of every day. And those two examples of the Israelites facing the Philistines and Abraham and Sarah conceiving a child, those are just a few of the many, many, many examples that Scripture records of what it looks like to follow the flesh instead of fearing God in faith and what happens when we do. Here in Acts 23, it is the same fleshly, faithless impulse that drove these unbelieving Jewish men to view Paul, to to interpret Paul, and to interpret the gospel that Paul was preaching as trouble. 
and then to take matters into their own hands and to justify whatever means they felt were necessary to deal with the trouble. Even when it amounted to murder, which God forbids. Killing Paul was what seemed right to them and to the leaders of Jerusalem and the scholars of God's Word. Assassination was what they deemed justifiable and necessary in order to deal with their perceived trouble. And the Sanhedrin apparently had no problem whatsoever with this plan or with being complicit in it themselves. So you see, such is the wickedness and ungodliness and hypocrisy of the sinful human flesh and the lengths that sinful humans will go to in order to get what they want and to justify it in their own hearts and minds. Well, the wicked plans here in Acts 23 were not able to thwart God's sovereign purposes. Instead, God's providence frustrated their sinful scheme. In verse 16, Luke says, that the son of Paul's sister heard about this ambush and went and entered the barracks and told Paul all about it. Now this is the only place in Scripture where we learn anything explicitly about Paul's family. He mentions several people at the end of the book of Romans that he calls kinsmen who might be relatives of his. But this person, whose name were not given is explicitly said to be the son of Paul's sister. It's Paul's nephew. Now Paul, remember, was born and raised in Tarsus, way out to the west. What in the world is his nephew doing over here in in, in Jerusalem? And in Philippians 3, Paul says that when he had become a Christian, he suffered the loss of everything, including his Jewish family. He had been disowned. By all of his kinsmen. So why is his nephew here now? Why does his nephew care what happens to his uncle? Has his nephew become a Christian? Is his sister a Christian? Since Luke seems to know who she is too. How did Paul's nephew come to be in Jerusalem? And how in the world did he come to hear about this ambush that's being set up for Paul? Well, we don't know the answers to any of those questions. All we know is that Paul's nephew just happened to be in just the right place at just the right time to help save Paul's life. And that is what is called providence. Because God ordered it that way. However he got to Jerusalem, we don't know. Whatever he thought in earthly terms he was doing there, we don't know. But he was there because God wanted him there. God purposed it, God planned it, God decreed it, and God ordered every circumstance of this universe such that He would be there and overhear that plot and be given access to go tell Paul about it. Paul hasn't been found guilty, remember, of any crime, and so he would be able to have visitors. And so... His nephew comes and tells him about this plot to have him killed. And Paul tells one of the centurions to escort his nephew over to the tribune, to Lysias, and tell Lysias about it. And in God's providence, Lysias seems to be a pretty reasonable guy, doesn't he? You would think, right, that that a typical Roman tribune like this would go, who is this kid? Get him out of my... I don't want to hear anything he's got to say. But he takes Paul's nephew by the hand. He leads him somewhere private where they can talk and listens to what he has to say and he believes him. And then he does something about it, Lysias does. Right? Lucky, huh? That that all of this goes so well? Not luck. Providence. Every event falling with exact precision into its proper place in the unfolding of God's divine plan. For the praise of His glory. Hallelujah. Again, that's Warfield's definition of providence. It's this biblical teaching that God reveals in Scripture of the reality of how His sovereign lordship and wisdom and power are exercised in this world over every aspect of it and over every instance of time and history. 
Again, the important thing about providence is the relationship between who God is and what God does, His nature and His works. So when we ask ourselves, who is God? The answer that He gives in His Word has to do preeminently with His Lordship. In all of His eternal glory, in all of His divine attributes, in all of His holiness, He is the Lord of heaven and earth, the sovereign one, the one who rules, the one who reigns over all things. That is chiefly what he is, and that is chiefly what unbelief and unbelievers want to deny about him, right? Psalm 115, verse 2, why should the nation say, where is their God? Why are they, why are they asking that? The unbelievers of this world scoff at our God. Because in their unbelief, they interpret the world through the lens of their own understanding and their own sinful desires. And they say, you know what? If, if their God was real, and if He was what they say He is, then none of the bad things in the world should be happening. Right? You, you've heard unbelievers make this argument before. It's called the problem of evil. If He's really all-powerful, and if He's really good, then there shouldn't be any evil. Because if there's evil in the world, it either means he's not as powerful as he says he is to be able to stop it, or he's not good because he allows it. Right? And so they deny him. This is how the unbeliever reasons about God. This is, this is how unbelief evaluates the God who reveals himself in Scripture. And that's what Psalm 115 means when it says that the nations are saying, where is their God? Look at all the trouble. Where's your God? According to their finite and fallen understanding and their sinful perspective of the world, there's no evidence to be seen that that God is real. And so they either imagine some alternative deity or they deny the existence of God altogether. But here's what the believer says. When the nations say, where is their God? The believer says, verse 3 of Psalm 115, Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. He's sovereign and His providence governs everything. And if I don't understand why, the problem isn't with Him, it's with me. Our God is the ruler of the whole universe. Our God is the Lord of all The Lord is in His holy temple, Psalm 11 declares. The Lord's throne is in the heaven and His eyes see all things. He is the Most High. And His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all of the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will according to the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand. And no one can say to him, what have you done? Those are the words of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 4. And he was the, the once wicked, unbelieving king of Babylon who, 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 who fancied himself a god. Until the one true God sovereignly, providentially humbled him And then graciously restored him. And Nebuchadnezzar believed and gave praise to him. God is the Lord who rules and reigns from heaven over all things. He's eternal. He's infinite. His knowledge is infinite and inscrutable. He never learns anything because he always knows everything. He's all powerful. There is no force in the universe that can stay his hand. And he has, Isaiah 46 verse 10 says, he has decreed the end from the beginning. Which of course means that in order for the beginning that he has decreed to lead to the end that he has decreed, every single thing in between the beginning and the end must also be according to what he decreed. Otherwise the end is going to end up somewhere else. This is what Paul means in Ephesians 1.11 when he says that he, the sovereign Lord God, has predestined all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. So, God's eternal wisdom and absolute sovereign lordship 
are expressed in His eternal decrees, which means His all-wise plan and purpose, which was in His perfect, unchanging mind since before He created the world. And that perfect, all-wise purpose and decree gets worked out in time, in space, in creation, by Him who created all things that have been created, and in history, as He upholds all things by the word of His power, Hebrews 1 says, and guides and governs all things according to His perfect wisdom and purposes. That's providence. Which when we grasp it and begin to comprehend it and trust it, causes us to trust Him And to render praise to Him, no matter what our circumstances, because we know that our circumstances are not ultimately guided by fate. They're not ultimately governed just by chance and natural things that are going on in the world that nobody's in control of. They're not even defined ultimately by the wicked plans of evil people in this world. Behind it all lies the perfect providence of our Almighty God who is good and faithful, and steadfast in His love towards us. Now God's wisdom and God's lordship are sometimes expressed and sometimes manifested in what the Word of God calls miracles, right? Miracles are extraordinary demonstrations of God's lordship in the world. They go beyond the ordinary ways that He has designed things to work and that He ordinarily works in the world. So things like the parting of the Red Sea in Exodus, the manna that fell from heaven in the wilderness, the sun standing still in the sky in the book of Judges, the raising of the widow's son from the dead, the raising of Jesus from the dead. Jesus is turning the water into wine in Cana, walking on water, multiplying the loaves and the fishes to feed 5,000 people, healing the lame, giving sight to the blind. All of those things were extraordinary demonstrations of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of Lords and very God of very God. Here's the thing. Sometimes people think that God's working in this world is limited to miracles. When you see a miracle, obviously God's at work in that extraordinary demonstration of His Lordship that happens occasionally in this world. But but when He's not doing miracles, He's not at work. And the world is just sort of like a clock that's been wound up and is, is governing itself according to its own natural principles. They're ignoring the reality of providence. If miracles are the extraordinary demonstrations of God's lordship, then providence is His ordinary working in the world. He doesn't just wind up the world like a clock and let it run itself according to natural laws. He upholds all things by the word of His power, Hebrews 1 said. He holds everything together all the time, Colossians 1.17 says. That's providence. The Westminster Catechism defines providence as God's holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all of His creatures and all of their actions, and the emphasis is on the word all. All. God's lordship and control of His world is comprehensive and it is constant. And that's a good thing. Because if it's not, we're all in big trouble. There is no hope. Louis Burkhoff says, Providence is that continued exercise of divine energy whereby the Creator preserves all His creation and all His creatures. It is operative in all that comes to pass in the world and it directs all things to their appointed ends. All, all, all. The end from the beginning and everything in between. Isaiah 46, 10. Psalm 104, 
beautiful psalm exalts in the fact that everything that happens in the world, everything reflects God's wisdom and providence. Verse 24 of Psalm 104, Oh Lord, how manifold are your works, not just occasional miracles, but everything I look at. How manifold are your works, in wisdom you have made them all. And the earth is full of your creatures. Every creature, everything, every work, in every moment of all of time proclaims the wisdom and power of God. In Proverbs chapter 8, God's divine wisdom is, is personified. It's, it's revealed like a person who speaks so that rhetorically we can learn from God's wisdom. And what God's wisdom speaks to us is that it is eternal. The Lord possessed me, possessed this wisdom at the beginning of all His work, and that it is manifested in everything that has been made. The mountains and the hills and the depths of the seas and every speck of dust on the ground. All that is in the heavens and everything that transpires daily in this inhabited world and among the children of men. All of it is ordered and governed by God's perfect wisdom. All of it has, has been decreed from eternity past and is being brought about according to the counsel of His will by His providence in all things in this world, in your life, every minute of every day. So that again, in the infinite wisdom of the Lord of all the earth, each event falls with exact precision into its proper place in the unfolding of His divine plan. In Acts 23, that meant providential protection for the Apostle Paul from the murderous plot of the Jews. Not just because Paul's nephew happened to be there, happened to intervene. Not just because Lysias listened to him and decided to get Paul out of Dodge. Those people did those things, and those things happened ultimately because in the infinite wisdom of the Lord of all the earth, every event falls with exact precision into its proper place according to the unfolding of His divine plan. Lysias believed Paul's nephew, believed Paul was in imminent danger, and so told the nephew, verse 22, not to say anything to anyone about having let Lysias know because he doesn't want the conspirators regrouping, adjusting their plot, going to plan B. Then, in verse 23 of Acts 23, Lysias calls two of his centurions. Remember, a centurion, the the word itself comes from the the Latin word meaning a hundred. A centurion was the commander of a hundred soldiers. He calls two of them to gather all of their troops, 200 soldiers, with 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, an army to take Paul by night in secret up to Caesarea and make sure nothing happens to him. Now, God could have done this a different way, right? God could have done something miraculous here, extraordinary here, right? He could have, he could have, he could have miraculously just caused Paul to disappear and be transported up to Caesarea directly. And if God had done that and exercised His Lordship in that kind of extraordinary way, right, like He did when He parted the waters of the Red Sea and defeated the Egyptian army by by causing the waters to come back down, then God would have glorified Himself greatly by doing something like that, just like He glorified Himself in the Exodus. Years later, When the Israelites got up to the promised land and sent spies in, the inhabitants of the land said, you know what, we've heard what your God did 40 years ago to the Egyptians. And our hearts have melted with fear for Him. God glorified Himself in an extraordinary display of His sovereign power and wisdom and lordship in that Red Sea moment, right? And there's lots of times in Scripture where God does extraordinary things like that and glorifies Himself in that way. So why didn't God do that here? Why didn't God do something extraordinary, some miracle in order to really glorify Himself? Because, and listen to this, because the ordinary expressions and manifestations of God's Lordship do not glorify Him any less than the extraordinary one. 
by most scholars' reckoning, there were about 2 million Israelites living in Egypt at the time of the Exodus. 2 million, that's a lot. That's how many people God led out of captivity through the Red Sea into the wilderness toward the Promised Land. And in the wilderness, God miraculously, extraordinarily, manifested His Lordship over creation and in this world by causing manna to fall down from heaven in order to feed all those people every day. Two million people. That's how much manna miraculously appeared on the ground every morning. More than enough every day to feed them all. It's extraordinary, right? It's a massive demonstration of the sovereign power and lordship of God. Psalm 136, verse 3 and 4 say this, Give thanks to the Lord of lords for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who alone does great wonders, like the manna for two million people every day, His steadfast love endures forever. I mean, surely, right? The miraculous feeding of two million Israelites in the wilderness with manna falling from the sky is an extraordinary manifestation of God's goodness and power and lordship. And that ought to cause people to glorify Him and sing praises to His name, like Psalm 136 does. Listen, the last four verses of that same psalm, Psalm 136, verses 23 through 26, say this. It is He who remembered us in our low estate. His steadfast love endures forever. He rescued us from our foes, for His steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for His steadfast love endures forever. Did you hear verse 25? He who gives food to all flesh. That's an emphasis not on the extraordinary, miraculous feeding of two million people in the wilderness during one sliver of human history, but to the ordinary feeding providentially, of all flesh over all time, every creature on the planet over all of history (laughs) are fed by God every day, which is also attributed to the glory and the steadfast love of God, right? The food doesn't grow just according to natural causes. Ultimately, it's an expression and a manifestation of the ordinary working of God in this world. God who upholds all things comprehensively and constantly by the word of His power. God in whom all things hold together, the crops, the livestock, they all exist by the providence of God who is glorified as the one who gives food to all flesh. So which is more wonderful to you? God feeding a few million people in the wilderness for a few years or God feeding all flesh for all of history? Which is more wonderful? One happens by the extraordinary, miraculous work of God in this world. The other happens by His ordinary, providential work in this world. Which is more wonderful? Well, you don't have to choose. God is wonderful and awesome in all of His works and in all of His ways. Now, does that include the painful ones? The hard circumstances? The sufferings? the afflictions, the trials. It does. God doesn't cause the evil. He's not the author of it in this world by which wicked men perpetrate all kinds of violence and wickedness and it causes no end of suffering in this world. But He does reign sovereignly over it, having decreed it according to His eternal and good purposes. That's true for every single instance of wickedness in the world, even as much as it was true for the greatest instance of wickedness in this world, which was the murder of Jesus on the cross. Perpetrated by the hands of wicked men who are culpable for their sin. And it happened by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, Diseases of all kinds ravage human beings in this world. Our bodies are subject to decay along with the rest of creation because of the fall and sin and the curse that makes it all groan for redemption. And our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. 
He has decreed the end from the beginning. And He's good in all of it. And He's working all of it together, all things, even the painful ones, Romans 8, 28, for our good. To teach us to trust Him when all around our soul gives way, He is still my hope and stay. To purify us, to refine us through the fiery trials that He ordains in our lives. To help us, even though it's painful in the moment, Hebrews 12 says, to bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness. As we cry out to Him, as we learn to cast every care on Him, as we draw near to Him because there's nowhere else to go and nothing else to stake our hope to. Because He has sovereignly and wisely taught us in all of His goodness that even if our flesh and our heart should fail, He is the strength of our heart. He is our portion forever. Through those things He teaches us to say with Jeremiah, everything else is horrible around me. It's painful around me. It's a disaster. It's a catastrophe. But I have learned to call this to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore will I hope in Him. Not in this stuff. Not in earthly comfort. Not in my body or life or wisdom or wealth. In Him who sovereignly sometimes takes all those things away from me so I won't trust in them too much. And that hurts, but not nearly so much as the great blessing of being left with Him and Him alone. Remember Warfield's pastoral admonition, a firm faith in the universal providence of God is the solution of all earthly troubles. Because apart from a firm faith in this great truth, our flesh will tempt us to interpret and to respond to the troubles according to our own understanding and our own fleshly and worldly wisdom and and according to the sinful impulses and desires of, of our flesh. But through a firm faith in the universal providence of God who is always good, we can know that in the midst of any trouble even, we can know the peace that surpasses all understanding and the comfort that the God of all comfort gives, and the eternal hope that He has guaranteed to us through Jesus Christ. A hope of glory that is so infinitely great that all of the combined troubles of this world aren't even worthy of being compared to it, Paul says. And we can know the joy of the Lord that is our strength as we continue to run with endurance and sojourn towards the better country. And as we do that, We can do it singing, whatever my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him, I leave it all. Do you need to worry and be anxious and fret and panic? Not if you leave it all to Him and trust that He's good in it all. Will He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us, will He not also with Him give us all things? Don't we trust Him who gave His Son for everlasting salvation? Is He sovereign or isn't He? Is He good or isn't He? Then why do I fret so much? Why am I so anxious all the time? Why do I panic and fear and complain and bicker and grumble so easily? And why am I so prone to grasping the reins and charging off in my own strength and understanding instead of trusting Him? In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Proverbs 3.6 promises. And Christians, that means acknowledge Fix your faith firmly to the reality that your God reigns from heaven. That He accomplishes all His purposes. That He's always good in all His ways. That He is always with you in every fiery trial and working all things together for your good. 
Rest in this great reality. Rest in Him and let not your hearts be troubled. Say amen. Amen. Let's pray together today and then we're going to sing to our sovereign God. Father God, will you help us? Holy Spirit, will you help us? Not to just understand, but to live according to this truth. Will you refresh and renew our minds by this truth even this day? And use it to continue to transform the way that we live our lives. To free us from fear and anxiety. Because your love casts all that out. And you have given us a a spirit of love and power and self-control. Would you help us to trust you? And to be filled with peace and joy and comfort and hope in the midst of these trials because we know that in them you are sovereign and through them you are at work to accomplish all of your good purposes and that those purposes are always good for us even when they're painful for us. Oh, Father, help us trust you even as we sing that everything that you do is good and right. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.